Well, good morning. If you would turn in your Bibles with me. Ellie Joe, can you hand me that bottle of water? I'm sorry, I forgot it. Turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 4. Thank you, sugar. John chapter 4. Last week we saw the reality that Christ is Lord over every aspect of our lives. He is sovereign over our salvation indeed, but He's also sovereign over the commanding of our lives for His glory to take the gospel into the entire world. We saw the reality that the Great Commission, if you unpack it over the four gospels, give us these emphases that Christ has authority to send, that the final judgment is coming, that He is the yes and amen of the Old Testament, that the Word speaks of the Word made flesh, and that we are now commissioned to go into all of the world. Every uh, circumstance of our life, everything that we've experienced throughout this past week has been an opportunity a platform, if you will, to carry on the commission that God has given every believer to take the gospel to the nations, to our community, to our coworkers, to our fellow students, to our neighbor. So the only question that we were left with last week is, are we being faithful to do that? Are we being faithful to proclaim the gospel? Uh, that the gospel is not something just for the Lord's day. The gospel is something for, well, it's for every day. So with that in mind, if you would do honor to the reading of God's Word and stand this morning as we begin again. We'll start in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But He said to them, I, ha- I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving his wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so the sower and the reaper may rejoice together for here the saying holds true one sows and another reaps I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor others have labored and you have entered into their labor many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony he told me that all that I ever did so when the Samaritans came to him They asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. These are God's words to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into your presence thankful for your word, thankful for the testimony of these Samaritan people that you indeed have sent your Son to be the Savior of the world. Help us to understand that phrase more fully. Would you inscribe it on all of our hearts that we would be faithful to the commission that you've given to each one of us to take your gospel throughout this community, throughout our nation, and throughout the world. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. The narrative has been building to this point, to this crescendo, to this final statement here that is given by the Samaritans. John describes the opening part of this narrative, a nameless woman going into uh, a, a direct discourse with Jesus about the living water that He would ultimately give her. And we've seen how we contrast the 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 pedigree of this nameless woman with that of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was religious, devout, well-studied, of renown, uh, a teacher of teachers, all of those things. And yet we don't have a, a clear testimony that he ever came in repentant faith. What we do have is that this nameless woman who was of low esteem, who had a horrible reputation, who was 
the despised of the most despised group uh, among the nations, uh, according to the Jews at the time, uh, she is given a testimony. But we're not ever given her name. You know, one of the things that I keep thinking about is, as I study through this passage, I, I wonder if for some generations after her coming to Christ, that she did have some sort of a, a name in the community, that they remembered this woman who first brought the gospel uh, into the community. Uh, and I think there's, some, there's something to learn here. Maybe that's true. Maybe, maybe this nameless woman was given some sort of renown on the heels of being the one to first bring the gospel to these people. But the economy of God's Word leaves us with a real picture of what it is to live a life for evangelism. And that is that we don't live lives to build up our own name, but to make much of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's, in fact, what's going on here in the text. True, evangelism isn't about isn't about our name, but making much of Jesus. Many struggle, I think, in their own evangelism. When I ask you the question, how are you doing in your evangelism? I think we all, if honest, would say poorly. Um, And there are many reasons for that. I'm not going to get into all of them today, but I think one of the reasons why we struggle in our evangelism comes down to that very point. We want to make a reputation for ourselves. And we're a little bit intimidated, worried about what it means uh, to carry the name of Jesus forth, especially in a culture, a political climate, a day and age where Christ's name in so many places in America today is despised. And by those social pressures and that own concern, the fear of man that we have, we are silenced in our witness for the gospel. I, I pray for myself and for each one of you, that we would grow out of that fear of man and that we would be given boldness in our witnessing the glories of the gospel. Well, This little group of Samaritans, this despised people now, there's a a little group of people who have come to know, not just because of the words of this woman, but because they heard from his own lips uh, his, his identity, the truth that he is the Savior of the world. And so they come here in verse 42, and they make a declaration that I think is paramount to John's gospel when they say, we know that this is indeed is the Savior of the world. Now, this declaration includes several words, and we're going to drill down, but first I want to just acknowledge uh, and, and remind you of John's John's way of writing, uh, the declaration contains, it includes the word to know, which is one of John's favorite words. Uh, He is the consummate poet, if you remember. John likes to take a few words and spin them constantly. That's what he's doing all throughout his writing. If you can pick up on the the words that are repeated often, you'll pick up on themes uh, that John is seeking to convey. Uh, So know is one of those words, and we know from 1 John, his pastoral letter, uh, that we see this word repeated numerous times. Chapter 2 and verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Chapter 2, verse 11, But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Verse uh, 19 and 20 of chapter 3, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Verses 7 and 8 of that same chapter. Be Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Chapter 5, verse 13 of that letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Know is one of John's preeminent favorite words. He loves to use words, again, exhaustively. And what we think he's, he's probably doing is he uses the word know so many times as there's a historical reason. There's the Gnostics, those who are 
perpetrating a false gospel against the church. And so John has, I think, in a way that is kind of humorous, but also loving to the church, he has hijacked their moniker as Gnostics, and he's using it against them. You think you have this higher spiritual knowledge, but we are the ones that really know. Let that be a warning to all of you not to irritate a theologian because they can poke fun at you and you not even really know it. Uh, I think that's part of what is happening in John's writing. He's writing against uh, what they're seeking to teach. But there's another word here, Savior. We know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. The sad reality in the narrative in John's Gospel, and it's a reality that carries forward to our day, is nobody wanted a Savior of the world. Nobody was concerned with having a Savior for the world. And I'm afraid that in our day and age, if we're honest, in our own society, in our own culture, we have much of the same problem. The Jewish people didn't want a Savior for the whole world. They wanted a political Savior for Jerusalem. The Samaritans, if we go on in Luke's Gospel, we'll find that they weren't really concerned with a Savior for the entire world either, even though it's said here, collectively, as a nation, they were concerned with a Savior that would save Samaria. Uh, the Romans were concerned about the salvation politically of Rome, and the Greeks wanted to save Greece. But Jesus is not, never has been, and no matter how many political pundits try to use his name, he never will be a political savior. He is a savior, the one who has come to redeem those that the Father has given him before the foundation of the earth from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He is the savior of the entire cosmos. That is who Christ is. Before we understand this whole phrase, we, we then need to come, I think, to this one word that we're going to spend the majority of our time on this morning, and it is this word, world or cosmos, cosmos, however you want to pronounce it. I've never preached and quoted cosmos without a correction from all directions to how to pronounce that word. I would just contend with you this morning about Greek lexical glosses. None of us grew up speaking Koine Greek. So excuse my hick version of a language that none of us actually functionally use. Cosmos, the world. It's a significant word in the New Testament. It's used 185 times throughout the New Testament. There is a clear emphasis, not just particularly on one group of people, but on all people throughout the New Testament. But what we find, what I find to be particularly compelling is again that John is the one who has used this word preeminently. Of the 185 times in the New Testament that the word cosmos is used, John is the author of that word 105 times. It's written by John 105 out of 185 times. Times. 78 times it's used in the Gospel of John, 24 times it's used in his pastoral letters, and three times in the book of the Revelation. Matthew uh, uses, for comparison, the word cosmos eight times. Mark and Luke use the word cosmos three times. So what we see when appropriating that word is that this is a word that John is using to draw out one of the grand themes uh, that he is seeking to communicate in his particular gospel. So what does the word mean? What does it convey? Um, it, it certainly is used in a sense of the entire universe, but we actually find in antiquity that this particular word is used, uh, if I remember correctly, Homer is one uh, area, one, one work that is, is, uh, quotes this word often. It is, uh, means an ornament of some kind, an object that is well-proportioned, well-constructed, that displays the beauty and the artistry of the one who has created it. 
The word uh, is translated then literally in our day, cosmos, to cosmetics. Ladies, every time that you go and you put on all of your cosmetics, you are, or, or you are, um, oh, I got to be careful here. <laughs> Boy, that's a lot of pressure right now. Um, you are putting an ornament of some sort on. You are, you are, you are displaying uh, beauty in that sense. Um, and here we find John using that word, the emphasis of ornamentation, pointing to the reality of the beauty of the world. The whole universe, we've learned to this point, is God's creation, uh, is God's theater uh, for showing His creative work and also His, cre- his redemptive work. Uh, the entire cosmos exists, this ornament exists, as a creation of God to show His power in creating and in also in redeeming. But the, the universe then is in some sense God's ornament. It is that object which He has made that is well-proportioned, well-constructed, that shows His ability to make all things decently. John chapter 1, verse 10, we find, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. And so since the, the earth is the most significant uh, aspect of the entire universe, the word here applies to the whole universe, yes, but then it comes down more granularly to mean the entire sum total of the created earth, the world in that sense. But after that, John goes on to, there's a narrowing effect. If, if, here's the problem with so much Bible interpretation. If the world means one thing and only one thing, there's one gloss and only one, one meaning. If we take the total transfer of that one meaning and read it into every passage, we will come away with a monstrosity of a theology. But there is nuance to this word. It, it does mean the entire universe. The heavens declare the glory of God. When we walk out today, we're going to be warmed at least a little bit. Uh, we're going to be warmed by the sun. It's going to, to rain down on us in some sense. But then there is a more narrowing understanding of the word world. It's not the entire universe, but it is rather the things of the earth. And John goes on from there to narrow it more con- concisely to the entire human race, to mankind. So it's the universe, the earth, mankind. In the latter chapters, after Jesus has begun his ministry and he's, he's about to leave the world, John uses the word to point to a particular segment. He, he, not only does he come from the universe and he moves in the direction of the earth and from there to mankind in general, as John goes on writing, he uses the same word, cosmos, to move in the direction of a particular segment of mankind. And when he uses the word in relation to them, he's talking about those who are fallen, who are outside of Christ. That you are of the world or you are in Christ. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. But then in chapter 17, that the distinction of the fallen world is made more clear. John 17, verse 9. When he is praying there in the high priestly prayer, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So the universe, the earth, mankind, and then the lost world. There are those, again, who are in Christ this morning. And if you are included in that that blessed assembly, you should praise God. Because that's by grace alone. The other group that this word is used to denote the world is those who are yet in their trespasses and sins who have followed the willful rebellion of satan in despising the name of god so the world has different connotations different meaning but the early chapters the chapters that we've been through and we're going to walk through quickly this morning When John uses the word world, he's typically dealing with all of mankind in some sense. Let's look at John chapter 1 and verse 9, and we'll find 
a use of this word. John chapter 1 and verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, we have to have in our minds as we're dealing with this word, uh, uh, with this verse rather, what is the true light which gives light to everyone? The Quakers, who leave us those tasty oats as part of their posterity, they would have, uh, they would have encouraged us to believe this morning that the, the light that has come into the world is a light that resides in each one of us. We're all born with an inner light, and we just need to fan into flame that light and stir it up so ev- others can share in the light that we possess. The only problem is, is John blows that entire interpretation out of the world, out of the water by, by pointing out the reality that he was not the light, but that he came to bear witness to the light. We are of the darkness, my friends. So the picture here is not a word picture. When John is using, and again, he's a poet, he likes to use words to paint pictures. He, he is not painting a picture of a nice uh, cottage up on the hill with a glowing light inside. That's not who we are. The better picture of who we are is a dilapidated old shack that has no light on the inside, and here Jesus comes and he shines a great spotlight onto the outside of the house. He illuminates, but he doesn't illuminate distinctly every man from the inside. He illuminates by shining outwardly to us that we may see his glory. That's what John is communicating here. We see that he was the light. We are not the light. But the light has come to shine on all men in some respect. Do you realize, beloved, how blessed you are that Christ came into the world. It's only because that it, the, the reality that he came into the world that we who are not Jews can know him truly. It's only because he came to bear witness of the light, of the holiness of God, that you and I stand this morning believing and worshiping in light of the living triune God. Apart from Jesus, each one of us would still be in darkness. We would still be cut off. The world today holds derision for the people of Israel, for Jews. And we're seeing it on... It's, it's amazing to me how the pundits are so surprised. I can't believe that these people at Harvard hate the Jews. I can't believe that these liberal institutions are hateful people. All that does is prove that they've never read a history book. Because the world has always despised the people of God. The world has always been opposed to this tiny, fledgling nation. This has been the people that have ultimately been disregarded all throughout human history, and yet they are the ones that have been entrusted the very oracles of God. Of course they're despised people. Because, they, because ultimately the world at large that is lost lies in the power of the evil one and they hate the light. There's a narrative about the first Earl of Beaconsfield, the only British prime minister who was ever of Jewish heritage. He was, now one of the things I love about British politics, y'all, we just don't have it the same way. Their prime minister has to go down into the House of Commons and argue their policy. It's glorious. Think about this. Joe Biden having to go into the middle of the House of Representatives to defend the insanity of some of his policies. And the heckling that goes on. I can't say that I would argue that it's godly, but it's certainly entertaining. We are boring in our form of government. I mean, there's a reason why 99% of the American populace does not watch C-SPAN. Because we haven't set up a show. They have. I mean, they are great at heckling. And, and, and to get to the point, uh, this particular British Prime Minister who served under uh, Queen Victoria... He was there in the House of Commons, 
And someone made a comment that he was of Jewish heritage, saying this pejoratively, because of course at that time largely the United Kingdom was a Christian uh, nation. And uh, his response was absolutely fab- fabulous, I think. He, he responded to the, to, the, to the mockery by saying, yes, I am a Jew. And when the ancestors of the right honorable gentleman were brutal savages in an unknown island, we think he was speaking of Ireland, Mine were priests in the temple of Solomon and were giving the law and religion to the entire world. And that's true. We find in Romans chapter 9, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. For a long time, beloved, we have to contend with the reality that to be in the world... To not be an ethnic Jew was to mean you were cut off from all of those things. I, I, can't, I think we've been to so many church services and we have rejoiced in the reality of our salvation from infancy that we have started to neglect the glorious reality that we who are Gentiles have been engrafted into the kingdom. That we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're not nearly as excited about it as we should be. To be outside of ethnic Israel was to be cut off, isolated, and in the world. Lost, apart from God. But we find in verse 14 of chapter 1 here, "...the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." At one time... The, the way that God was, was displaying His glory to the entire world was through the law and the sacrificial system of the Jewish people. But now Jesus has come, and He has come full of salvation and revelation to the entire world. He is the Savior of the world, the light of the world in that sense. One of the things that I think you have to meditate on as you make this as you as you come to this reality that we should not be opposed to the Jewish people and that God has used them throughout the ages is to friends think about the reality of what our nation would be and what our heritage would be had Christ not come I don't think that any of us can even imagine that we have an entire uh, we have an entire uh, system that wants to build up the future generations by erasing Christ from our history. But I promise you they are erasing the light from our nation in seeking to do so. Whatever we would have been, I promise you, it wouldn't have been good. It wouldn't have been, in any sense, good for the human flourishing that we've seen throughout the centuries. So we see Jesus as the light of the world. The other connotation of Jesus' relationship to the world comes in verse 29 of chapter 1. Look with me. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, that is John, and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the only Savior of the world He is the only one that we can believe in. He is the only propitiation for our sins. He is the propitiation for our sins, John says in chapter 2, verse uh, verse 2. But not ours only, but for the entire world. Have you ever thought about the reality that Jesus is called the, the Lamb of God? The Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. John was pointing, obviously, to the Jewish temple and to the sacrificial system that took place there. And he's pointing to Christ as the innocent substitute that would bear the sins of all of those who would call upon His name. He takes away the sins of all of those who have believed on His name. 
But if we're really going to come to this, look, we can skip over the phrase, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, tuck it in our pocket and move on and be happy with a cute little phrase in our mind. But I, I think that this is one of those phrases that's going to require thinking on our part. Uh, remember in your mind the first time that a sacrifice was made after Adam and Eve fell there in the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, you'll remember that God comes back to commune with them after Satan had led them into rebellion against God. And God calls out to them, where are you? And then God pronounces after, after he speaks with Adam and with Eve a curse on the earth. But there in verse 21, we find this. Now, Adam and Eve had already sewed uh, coverings for themselves because of their sin. They realized that they were naked, and they, for the first time, experienced shame in light of their sin. And so they had made for themselves uh, a covering. But in verse 21, we find these words, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. He has just instituted a normative way of worship. He has, in that particular instance, established a repeatable form by which humanity can come and have right relationship with him. One animal for one person. Bloody, messy, vile, think about it, kind of gross, painful, all the consequence of sin. Now, Abel would later repeat in his sacrifice this same sacrificing. And Hebrews 4 tells us that God counted to it to him as righteousness. But just like his parents sowing their fig leaves to cover themselves, Cain presented an offering without sacrifice that was from the dirt, and God rejected it. So here stands one animal, one lamb for one per person, and this passed on for thousands of years. The, 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 the right way to make sacrifice for sin was one animal, one lamb, for one particular person. But then we move on in the text and we come to Exodus chapter 12 and we find these words. Now remember, Israel had been in bondage for 430 years to this point. They'd been in bondage to sin much longer, but bond, in bondage to, in Egypt for 430 years. And then you find these words in the institution of the Passover. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your, for your sons forever. What do we have here in the movement? It's no longer one lamb for one person, but now it's one lamb for one family. And that night we know that the angel of the Lord descended upon Egypt and all of the firstborn of the house of Egypt died even into the livestock and Pharaoh came to Moses and told him to take his people and to go. After the Exodus, and we find this in Leviticus chapter 16, there is the institution of the Day of Atonement. And especially in Exodus chapter 30, verse 10, we find Aaron, the priest, shall make atonement on, the horns, uh, once a, on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once a year throughout your generations. It is holy to the Lord. Blood was taken, and it was sprinkled there on the mercy seat by the high priest. And here we find another progression. Not only is there one sacrifice for one person, but the progression to one sacrifice to an entire family. And now we have a picture of one sacrifice for the entire nation. And you're thinking this morning, isn't that cool? All the way from one sacrifice, and the lambs are thinking, well, this is getting a whole lot better for us. 
we're covering more territory. And you're thinking, one lamb for one person, one lamb for one family, one lamb for one nation. But friends, if you were in the world apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from it, particularly in this time, if you were in the world and you were not an ethnic Jew, that nation was not your nation. You were cut off. Now, many uh, liturgical forms of worship throughout our history, and I'm not going to get into this in depth, but uh, they, they point to a day that's coming up, I believe it's the 24th of March this year, the, 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 the celebration of Palm Sunday. Some of you may have grown up in churches where there's high liturgy and, and, and uh, orthodoxy in that respect, and so uh, you celebrate it in that fashion. And what is celebrated in that, particular, uh, in that particular expression is Palm Sunday being the time when Christ entered Jerusalem as the triumphant king. I don't want to necessarily take issue, but I think there's a better interpretation. I think that there are people who are heralding Christ as king in some sense, but I don't think Jesus is the one that is ultimately participating in that. I think he's showing himself in a slightly different light. If you turn to John, John chapter 12 with me real quick. We have one lamb for one person. In the Passover... One lamb for one family. In the Day of Atonement, one lamb for the entire nation. We have to understand leading into John chapter 12, we're, we're heading for the time of the Passover. Uh, we're, we're moving into that time of the Jewish liturgy, liturgy and, and, and worship cycle. And here are the words that are found starting in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So there is triumphalism in what they're saying. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, setting on a donkey's colt. There it is. There's the triumphal entry. But there is something else that's going on here. For on that particular Sunday, the entire Jewish community was engaged in something else, namely the shepherds in that Jewish time would have been engaged in what is called the Day of the Lambs. It is the day that all of this, this mass quantity of the lambs would have been herded into the city of Jerusalem to mark the beginning of the Passover. What was happening was these shepherds were presenting these lambs to the slaughter for the salvation of many families. And Jesus rides in as all of these lambs are coming into the city. And He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins not of one, not of one family, not of one nation, but of the entire world. He is the one who comes as a, the only final wrath-bearing sacrifice to take away the sins of those who would call upon His name. As the crowds were heralding Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus is here actually presenting Himself as a lamb to the slaughter. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. No more blood on the lintel. No more one lamb for one person. No more one lamb for one family. No more one lamb for one nation. Now there is one lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so we find that verse that we all know so well, John 3.16, turn there, and we find its meaning. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now we've talked about the narrowing effect of John's words there. That ultimately, yes, God has demonstrated His love to the entire world, but that love is only efficacious to those who come by grace in repentance and faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you know this morning that God loves you? How do you know? Sir, how do you know that the Lord Jesus Christ actually loves you? Dallas, how do you know that the living God, the God who has given a way of sacrifice back to Himself, how do you know that He loves you? Is it because you've read it in your textbooks? Is it because of some religious tradition that you have? Friends, there are religious traditions all over the world today that bind people in some sort of an understanding that they have to work to please God. Do you know that God loves you because you look out at creation and you see that it's so beautiful? Now, God's creation is beautiful. It does declare His glory. But there's another reality as we look at creation. There's stuff out there that can eat you. The creation in and of itself doesn't declare to you that God loves you. It doesn't declare a a sacrifice on your behalf to be reconciled to God. Do you know that God loves sinful man because someone told you? Ultimately, the answer to that is no. We've been talking at length the reality that this nameless woman went out and she heralded the reality that Jesus was the Messiah, that He had told her all of the things that she had ever done. But that's not why these people in Samaria know that they are loved. It's not why we know that we're loved. The person that led me to Christ, uh, led me to Christ at a vacation Bible school. I was very young, and I'm so thankful for her. But she's not the reason that I know that I am loved in Christ this morning. The only reason that I know that God loves a sinful man like me is because He has displayed it in the sending of His only begotten Son to be the Lamb who would be slaughtered to take away the sins of those who call upon His name. Our understanding of His love does not come through our work. It only comes through His. There are some people who come into the church with so much zeal, Dallas. And at at some level, that's all of us at a given time, right? And they think, I'm going to get to work for God, and I am going to be this grand displayer of the love of God. I promise you, you will fail. Because it is only the Son of God that can herald, that can display, that can show the world the love that He And He alone has. The other thing that we have to see is that this declaration that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that God so loved the world to display His love in this way, ultimately these phrases don't preach a universal atonement. They present, in fact, a limited atonement. If you look at chapter 4, verses 39 through 42, you'll find the word many. Many Samaritans from the town believed. Not all of the Samaritans. The entire Samaritan town did not come and did not believe because it was only those who had turned in repentance and faith and believed on Jesus that would be saved. And it goes on to say, and many more believed because of His Word. Many, not all. God has displayed His love to all, but not all come. Question this morning. Have you come? Have you come to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And and, and friends, that doesn't come through just mere human volition. It takes a miracle of God to raise each one of us who are dead in our trespasses and sins that we would believe. If you're here this morning and you're believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of your theological heritage, if you believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God, He is the only propitiation for sin, the only way back to God, and if you're resting in Him and His finished works alone, rejoice because God has done a work in you that you would believe that very thing. We have centuries, generations, and we have biblical proof of what happens when God displays His love to a 
sin-infested world. Jesus came. We see, apart from grace, what humanity does in response to this marvelous gospel. Jesus came as the light, but we find in John 3, 19, these words, and this is the judgment, this is the verdict, this is the, you know, when, when you have a court case and there's a judgment, when there's a verdict, you don't have to agree with it, but it's final. This is the verdict, and, and here's the verdict of all verdicts, because this verdict has been leveled not by man, not by a jury of Christ's peers, but by Christ himself. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son into the world to be the Lamb of God, the light of the world, and the world said, no thank you, and crucified Him. Which is what happened, what Jesus came as the Lamb, but then we find in John 19, verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw Him, they cried out, crucify Him, crucify Him. Pilate said to them, take Him yourselves and crucify Him, for I find no guilt in Him. We find Pilate declaring the innocence of the Lamb of God. And it was the Jewish people who cried out, crucify Him, crucify Him. It's not by blood that you're saved. It's not because you're Jewish that you're saved. Because it's the Jewish people that put Christ to death. It's only by the will of God that you can come to repentant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God came to show the love, or Jesus came to show the love of God. But what do we find in Psalm 14, verse 1, that is still true in our workplaces, in our educational institutions, and in many of our churches today? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. For God so loved the world. But what has the world done with that love? We've squandered it by rejecting it. We've squandered it by building churches that say, God has done everything that He can do. Now your salvation is up to you. There's a lot of good moral people who will promote a liberal or a works-driven gospel that says we can be as long as you're a good person. And I quite frankly agree with that. As long as you're a good person, you, you can see God. The problem is that there are no good people. We're all wretched and depraved apart from the grace of Christ. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins. God has sent His light. He has sent His Lamb. He has shown His love. The question is, how are we responding and are we heralding this good news into the darkness that the Spirit would bring life and liberty to some. You know, the question has to be, in light of all of this, the reality that Jesus is the light of the world, the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, and the demonstration of God's love to the world. What do we do with that? Well, I think that we can take a little bit of a cue from how God moved into the world with the entire sacrificial system to begin with. He came with his institution of one lamb per person, and then one lamb per family, and then one lamb per nation, and then one lamb that would take away the sins of the world. And we need to apply that in this way. Are we believing? Are we repenting? Are we trusting? Do we trust in the lamb and in him alone? And if the answer to that is yes, then we have a commission, and that commission is to make sure first and primarily in our own families that that one lamb holds preeminence, that he is proclaimed to our children and our grandchildren. Do your children, do your grandchildren know that the greatest gift that was ever given to you was the lamb of God who remitted your sins? And once there, and we don't have to wait until all of our family members are saved, but I don't know about y'all, but I'm going to spend the rest of my life praying over my children and my grandchildren and my wife, the the Lamb of God who has taken away, who has remitted their sins. After that, we move to a nation. 
And we ask everyone in our nation, have you placed your faith in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? And after that, we go into all of the world proclaiming this same good news that there is a final Lamb, a once-for-all sacrifice. You place your faith in His finished work and that alone. And He is sufficient. One Lamb for you, for your family, for our nation, for the entire world. It is our calling to take the message forward in that way. It is our calling to live lives. Friends, it matters what we say. There are some who will say, don't, don't worry about what you say. Worry about how you live. That's nonsense because part of how you live is what you say. And I hope for all of us, though, that both our lives and our lips speak this truth that is found here in the mouths of of the Samaritan people, we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into your presence this morning seeing the reality that Jesus is sufficient for the salvation of all of those who would call upon your name. Father, we're so thankful that in those early years of your redemptive work, you provided one lamb that would continue to allow fallen man a way back to you. But then you moved from there in the Passover and you gave one lamb per family. But from there you moved for a sacrifice for the entire nation, one lamb for the whole Jewish people. My Father, we're most thankful this morning that we come under the blood of Christ knowing that He is the lamb who has taken away the sins of all of those who would call upon your name. Father, this morning we lament the reality of our weak witness in our generation. We're concerned with building up fortunes and with making names for ourselves and having all of the toys. And Father, we're, we're so often distracted by political conversation, but you have given us the message. This world has political problems. It has financial problems. It has socioeconomic and relational problems because it is devoid of this truth that Christ is the Savior of the world. Might you use us to bear light, to bring a witness to the reality that Jesus is the Lamb of God who has taken away our sins, but not ours only, the sins of all of those who you have called and who will call upon you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please rise if you're able. And let's sing, let's worship with what a day that will be. Shut down.